I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. There are lots of things you can believe if you want, lots of gods up for grabs. But what does it mean to believe in one and not the other? Is it narrow-minded, offensive, or inevitable? In the beginning, there was chaos, but... God is there first, and He brings order to disorder. And with artistic majesty, He cleaves from the skies above, the earth below, one hewn from the other, blue from blue, and there is the heavens, God's domain, and the land beneath it, ours. But the two overlap, and in that overlapping space, the intersection between heaven and earth God plants a garden, or so the story goes. God, the artist, creates and appoints the sun and the moon and the stars as rulers and guardians over day and overnight. Now, me, I look at the sun, and I don't feel much beyond resentment. I hate that thing. I think of it as a flaming ball of gas. I figure it's a star around which our solar system rotates or whatever. The moon... It orbits the earth and it does stuff to the ocean or something. But thousands of years ago, all ancient people understood the sun and the moon and the stars as actual celestial beings. They thought of them as observable proof of heavenly entities shining bright overhead. They were physical signs of a spiritual reality, a visible indication of the invisible world. Thousands of years ago, when the biblical authors first put pen to papyrus, they believed that the lights in the sky were indicative of the distinct but overlapping reality of a spiritual realm, separate from but permeating our physical one. The ancient Israelites, like the rest of the ancient world, thought of the stars as divine beings but not as God. The lights in the sky, they believed, reflected the glory of the one true creator God. They are images of God, but not God. Visual symbols of actual spiritual beings created by Yahweh, who existed to serve His good purposes. But the story of creation goes on. Just as God appoints heavenly creatures, He appoints earthly ones as well, not from luminous, superterrestrial blaze, but from dirt. And here comes the first twist among many in the Bible story. Having crafted guardians from cosmic spirit and creatures from lowly dirt, the Creator God chooses the lowly dirt-crafted humans as His partners and collaborators in ruling over creation. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings, that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels or heavenly beings, spiritual beings. And you've crowned them, humans, with glory and honor. You have made them, humans, rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. 
But in the same story, in slithers a spiritual being hurled down from God's domain into the land of dirt and crude matter at odds with God, at war with him. This spiritual entity wants to do some damage. So it sets out to convince humanity that they can rule and reign on their own terms apart from God. The lowly humans take the bait and having broken trust with God, they are made to leave the garden, the overlap space between heaven and earth, and are mired in a primordial spiritual rebellion against God, led by this snake entity who whispered those first words of defiance against the creator. And the Bible goes on unpacking this tragedy, the redemptive epic of this ongoing conflict across eons and nations and generations, heaven and earth, from Genesis to Revelation. Tonight is part two in our annual vision series, the time when every year we, as Van City Church, circle up and remind one another why we're here and where, God willing, we hope to go in the weeks and months and years ahead. This year, reclaiming faithfulness as an act of rebellion. How do we follow Jesus in a world that seems, generation after generation, as if it is unraveling? How do we follow Jesus faithfully in a world increasingly distant and estranged and hostile to the teaching and way of Jesus? How do we follow Jesus well when it often feels as if so many who once walked beside us on the road of discipleship are deconstructing and deconverting and falling away? Really, it's the same old story. It's the same old rebellion, and we're still in it. But we're not the only ones. In the Bible, there's a word, one word, a category title that can refer to a number of unique spiritual beings. In Hebrew, it's Elohim. In Greek, theos. Elohim can mean angels or demons or gods with a lowercase g, but it can also refer to God with a capital G. Dr. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project likens the way ancient Hebrews used the term Elohim to the way modern people might use the word mom. See, mom can refer to different kinds of women in different kinds of contexts, he says, but the word always refers to a certain role fulfilled by a certain kind of woman in a family-like context. So, for instance, if a group of children from different families are all together talking and one little boy says, it's mom's birthday, the other children would understand that the kid speaking up is referring to his own mother by using the title mom like a name. In the same way, the word Elohim can refer to different types of beings within the same shared category, but it can also be used like a name, and in context, it makes sense to those using and hearing it. We still actually do the exact same thing with the word God. God is not a uniquely Christian word. It isn't the God of Israel's name at all. And different people use God in different ways. But if I say at Van City Church on a Sunday evening on stage, God loves you, you know from the environment and the context specifically who I mean. Our God, the God of the scriptures, of the Israelites, of Jesus and the, his movement, has a proper name, Yahweh, but he is also a spiritual entity or an Elohim. But in the Bible, the authors make it abundantly clear that Yahweh is not simply one Elohim among many. He is the one and only creator God above all gods. For Yahweh, your God, is God of gods, or in Hebrew, is Elohim of Elohim. 
and the Lord of Lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. This same idea shows up throughout the scriptures. There is none like you among the gods. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is to be revered above all Elohim. Worship him, all you Elohim. For you, Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods, or Elohim. One Elohim, Yahweh, is above and before all other Elohim, or gods. But there are other Elohim. You could call them angels or demons or in some cases cherubim or gods with a lowercase g. All other Elohim are created by Yahweh, who is the Elohim above and before all other Elohim. Yahweh doesn't need them to accomplish his purposes, but just as he chose to create and appoint human collaborators, he chose to create and appoint spiritual collaborators as well. And just as many of God's human collaborators utilize their God-given autonomy and freedom to rebel against God, so have many of his spiritual collaborators. And in the Bible story, these rebellious spiritual entities are depicted as empowering and influencing the human power structures of the world. Again, Tim Mackey puts it this way, when the biblical prophets look out at the violent empires of their day, they see two dimensions to all the chaos and injustice. Human rebels who are being corrupted by the worship of spiritual rebels, the idol gods of money, sex, and military power. And in the biblical worldview, these spiritual powers behind human systems are alive and at work today. Paul went as far as to say that for disciples of Jesus, the conflict, the actual conflict, isn't between people at all, but against spiritual powers that animate sin and evil and suffering in our world. He wrote, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, meaning not against human beings, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When I was a kid, we had angels and demons, for sure. I don't mean the uh, goofy Dan Brown book or its subsequent uh, Tom Hanks adaptation. We had uh, blonde, Swedish-looking people with big, white, feathery wings and long, flowing robes. So we had angels, I guess. And we had demons, too. They were, you know, little horned goblins in red pajamas. I saw them myself in many Carmen music videos. Any, you guys remember those? hilarious. Go back and revisit them. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you know, count your blessings. And I was taught that both were real, angels and demons. They both interact on some level anyway with the human world, but how or why or to what extent, all that was kind of muddled. But one thing was for sure, there's only one being rightfully called God, period, and everything else called God is fake, or in other words, it does not exist at all. And maybe I'd ask questions about why the Old Testament refers to other gods uh, often with a lowercase g, and it refers to them as if they are actual living entities, or why the New Testament even goes so far as to refer to the devil as the god of this age. But 
as was and is often the case with tricky questions, I would get the old, well, whatever it means, it doesn't mean what it seems to mean. And I would think, okay, well, I mean, sometimes that's true, so whatever. But here's where things get really weird. You guys still with me? You okay? Great, thank you. What do we do with the biblical paradigm of Elohim? There are actually several popular opinions. These are not the only opinions, but these are kind of the mainstay ones if you go around and ask several people. First, you have kind of modern cultural Christian monotheism. The idea is that there's one God, and Jesus is how humanity ascends the mountain, so to speak, to get to God. All other gods, whether it's, you know, Moloch or Baal in the story of Israel, or Allah or Vishnu of other world religions, are, they're false gods, meaning they don't actually actually exist at all. The next view you might describe as uh, polytheism or pantheism or a kind of universalism. This is the idea that there is God as a concept, he, she, they, it, a state of being, an energy, whatever. But there are lots of ways to get to this thing called God. So, you know, you do you. Find your own truth, Diet Coke, Instagram, the whole thing. The ambiguous worldview can even be stretched into a kind of pan-deism or the idea that God is the universe, which is being mutated and adapted by the new deconstruction fad podcasters and the writing of people like Richard Rohr advocating for a universal Christ that is, quote, in all things. Now, this is not the worldview of ancient Israel, nor Jesus, nor the apostles, nor Paul, nor the early church, nor Christians throughout history. And then you have biblical monotheism or something in theology that we sometimes call creational monotheism. This, we would argue, is the paradigm presented by Jesus and by the authors of Scripture. In this worldview, there are many mountains and many spiritual vehicles by which one ascends each respective mountain. Each mountain represents a way of life over which reigns a real spiritual entity or entities or God with a lowercase g. This means the spiritual entities over and behind these worldviews can actually interact with and affect their followers. So think of the story of Exodus, for example, or the great animated feature on which it <laughs> was based. Um, if you remember that story, there's a scene in which the Egyptian magicians are kind of having a showdown with Moses and Aaron, and they are able to call on the power of their gods to perform miraculous signs, I think specifically turning a stick into a snake. And if you remember the story, Moses' staff also, you know, turns into a snake, and then it, it's transformed by Yahweh, Israel's God, and then it eats the, God, the, the snake that's been transformed by the Egyptian gods. Not so subtle metaphor, which is also awesome. In fact, the, uh, the story of the plagues in Exodus culminates in Yahweh declaring, and I quote, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. So in the scriptures, there are real empowered spiritual forces active in other spiritual worldviews. But there is one creator God who is before and above and over all other gods. He is the God of Israel and of the world who created all spiritual and human beings. And this God is completely unlike all other gods. This God descends the mountain in Jesus and comes to us. 
He is the only supreme God, the Father, and Jesus is his truest, most perfect representation. Jesus is teacher. He is Lord. He is God come to save us, God with us. It's not just that Jesus is the only way to God. He is, but it's more than that. Jesus is God come to us. The God revealed in Jesus is not only distinct from other spiritualities and gods, he is above them. He is the true God with all power and authority and all other spiritualities and gods are not him. Now, obviously, I know how that sounds. And you, maybe you're thinking, must things be so hardcore? So militant sounding. Can't we just have coexist bumper stickers and be nice to each other? And, you know, of course we should be nice to each other. But what does it mean to embrace one God and not other gods? Because everyone does it. Now stay with me. We're almost done. I want to take you guys through an interesting period of the early Christian movement. Larry Hurtado, uh, before he died in 2019, was a professor of New Testament language, literature, and theology. And in his awesomely titled book, Destroyer of the Gods, Hurtado visits stacks of ancient sources throwing hissy fits over the disastrous effects of this ragtag grassroots movement of early Christianity and the destructive power it had on the religions of the empire. It is hilarious. The problem was this. The ancient Mediterranean world was culturally polytheistic, meaning it was a culture of many, many gods. But this new movement had emerged out of nowhere claiming that one god was supreme over them all. It was revealed in a poor itinerary rabbi who had been executed came back to life and thus they refused to worship, acknowledge, or honor any of the other gods. One second century writing laments that Jesus has persuaded the early Christians that they are all brothers of one another after they have transgressed once for all by denying the Greek gods and by worshiping that crucified sophist himself and living under his laws. Another second century pagan writer called Celsus also wrote extensively about the danger of Christianity. Of his writing, Hurtado says this, along with the other pagan critics, Celsus complained about Christians' refusal to honor the traditional gods. Indeed, despite all the alleged stupidity of Christians, Celsus expressed a willingness to tolerate them if only they would honor the gods and follow the polytheistic customs that everyone else affirmed. By their refusal to do so, Celsus contended, Christians questioned the validity of the gods upon which the social and political order rested. If masses of people followed the Christians in their madness, Celsus declared, this would provoke the wrath of the gods and the social and political order would fall into chaos. Now, here's what I'm getting at with all this. Yes, the story of the Bible presents a hardcore worldview that challenges every other dominant worldview with its paradigm of overlapping physical and spiritual realms, spiritual beings, the whole thing. But the early church lived out the practical implications of believing this stuff as if it was actually true. When the economy, your social standing, even your financial and physical well-being are all contingent on towing the party line and at least humoring the dominant cultural understanding of the gods, you would have to be crazy not to keep up appearances. But they just wouldn't 
do it. In fact, one ancient pagan source I read this week specifically pointed out how annoying the Christian problem was because they would go willingly into jail rather than compromise by humoring the gods. I think he wrote something to the effect of, what's the point of jail? They just walk right in happy with one and they sing songs while they're in there. (laughs) So all the big threats were losing their gravitas. I'm sure no one was entirely thrilled about being martyred, but they did that too. And remember, Christianity wasn't a dominant cultural powerhouse the way it is in the Western world with modern evangelicalism and the twisting of Christianity. It was a grassroots persecuted minority. And even as it proliferated across the Roman Empire, it did so against incredible opposition, but they just wouldn't budge. They went to jail for it. They died for it. They faced social, political persecution as a result. Us, we're afraid of awkward conversations with strangers. That's where we are. The kind of fragile, timid, tepid claim on the supremacy of Jesus that compels us to tiptoe around what we say we believe is true, at least in the company of people we know won't give us a hard time about it. And I get it. I do. A lot of us, myself included, we grew up around a not-so-nice Christianity. It was, dare I say, mean at times. And we heard and saw a lot of icky, cruel things said and done to other people, to strangers, just because they didn't believe the exact same stuff as us. And really, it didn't matter what they believed, because by God, we were going to find some way to make them act like it. A lot of us, we've seen a my way or the highway Christianity, the kind that has meltdowns over holiday greetings and Starbucks cups and the legislation of quasi-Christian morality, trying to force Uncle Sam into clergy robes. And some of us, I would argue, understandably, rightly, wanted something better, kinder. We wanted something more compassionate from our Christianity. But, as is often the case, the pendulum swung and we traded the militant bullying tactics of American evangelicalism for a soft, compromised, hey, whatever you think is great spirituality, entirely inconsistent with the way of Jesus. Every time I see those signs in shop windows, uh, those little placards that promise, you know, we welcome all genders and sexualities and religions actual, you know, literal virtue signals. I I always wonder to myself, really? I wonder if that's true. Every religion with the hip bakery in Portland with the trans pride flags in the window really welcome hate-mongering religious fundamentalists? Or forget the extremes. All the major schools of Islam forbid same-sex relationships, as does the Baha'i faith, as does Sikhism, religious authority, and the Dalai Lama. Are they welcome at the coffee shop? At some point... We became convinced that being kind and compassionate required diluting our doctrine enough to let everyone have a little slice of being right, even when it creates a logical contradiction. You believe one plus one is two. I believe it equals three. Hey, we're both right. Coexist. You believe in Allah? Sure. Buddha sounds great. Shiva, whatever works for you, we're all right. This not only compromises everyone's beliefs, no one can or does actually live this way. Everyone believes in exclusive truth. Everyone believes, consciously or subconsciously, that some things are true and other things are not true. And accepting any worldview requires the subscriber to reject other worldviews. Muslims believe that Christians are wrong. Buddhists believe Hindus are tragically misled. Wiccans don't go to synagogue. 
Nothing is true if everything is true. You can't build a movement on the idea that everyone is right. And in the effort to soften the Christian resolve, you create a Christianity that demands no commitment, no passion, and no faithfulness. Hurtado argues that classic liberal forms of modern Christianity have often been concerned to align themselves with the dominant culture, affirming its values, even shifting in beliefs and practices markedly to do so. But the danger in this can be that unless there are also distinctive features and demands of being an adherent of a group, people cannot see the point of becoming one or the worth of remaining one. What has this got to do with us, with the vision of Van City Church? To survive the insanity of life in the world as individuals, as families, as a church, we will have to reclaim faithfulness as an act of rebellion. As usual, faithfulness to the way of Jesus, to the historic, apostolic, orthodox doctrine of generations of men and women all over the world for centuries of the Jesus movement means rejecting black and white, right or left, partisan binary of the dominant cultural narrative. The disciple of Jesus is to treat all people friend or enemy, good or evil, regardless of background or belief, as if they are created in the image of God and to dignify them as such with humility and compassion and self-sacrificial love. And at the same time, faithfulness to the truth of Jesus leaves us with the often uncomfortable reality that we, like everyone, do believe that there are true and false things about life in the world, about the physical and spiritual realms. Treating other people with dignity, compassion, humility, and love does not somehow necessitate an illogical and unsustainable, timid, fretful, spineless, nonsense concession that everyone is always right about everything. We believe something. We don't believe something else. Because Christianity isn't about metaphysical certainty. It is about whole life faith. I believe. Deep down in the depths of my soul, I believe so I will live accordingly. Yes, I believe in dignifying human beings with humble, self-sacrificial love. And, brace yourself for this, I also believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe that he is the physical embodiment of the only true creator, God. Allah is not Lord. The Buddha is not Lord. Vishnu is not Lord. The Mormon space deity Elohim is not the true God. Jesus is. And that also means that my allegiance is to no country, no politician, I stand beneath no flags. Biden is not Lord and neither is Trump. That also means pervasive social media narratives are not Lord. Gender identity is not Lord. Sexual orientation is not Lord. Career is not Lord. Money is not Lord. Family is not Lord. Art is not Lord. Not apps, nor streaming services, nor fame, nor fortune, not laziness or sleep. There is one true God above and before all revealed in Jesus. That is what I believe. Why does this matter? Because the Bible argues that there are actual spiritual forces behind the idol gods of other religions and other worldviews with real influence and power in the world. Other people are not the enemy, but other gods are. 
When Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus and told them, listen, our struggle is not against human beings, but against spiritual forces in rebellion against God, he also encouraged the church by describing how the disciple of Jesus defends themselves against their true enemy. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you might be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and, watch this, the only offensive weapon on the entire list, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The weapon, the only weapon, is the Bible's inspired and authoritative story of Jesus' victory over spiritual rebellion by his life, death, and resurrection. We don't come here week after week, year after year to open this ancient sacred text together as interesting food for thought. This is not a weekend retreat. This is not a book club. Are you kidding? I am not giving my life over to some watered down, everyone is right, self-help spirituality. I am not offering you an option on the buffet table of modern spirituality. I stand with centuries of disciples of Jesus who believe Jesus when he said, I, Jesus, am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Early on in the Christian movement, the pagans became terrified that the Christians would undermine the dominant cultural religions and call into question the ultimate authority of political power, that Jesus would become the destroyer of the gods. And they did. And he is. That is what we are up to. Now, I'll be honest, uh, I am a contrarian by nature, so I've got no issues with this Jesus is Lord stuff. It doesn't make me squirm to say that I'm not Muslim or Buddhist or whatever, that I'm Christian, but I get it. It's complicated. It's not only about being scared or, you know, like timid about belief. It's about being confused. It's about wanting to treat other people with kindness. And quite frankly, it is often, for many of us, myself absolutely included, it is, a, it is about being deceived. Because part of us wants to believe that there is room for other gods. And I'm not just talking about Vishnu and Allah. I'm talking about fitness and TikTok and mammon and Republicans and Democrats and progressivism or conservatism or whatever. And I believe that casting a vision for the future of Van City Church does mean reclaiming faithfulness as an act of rebellion. Uncompromising faithfulness is inherently, I believe, rebellious because it has the courage and the resolve to say, I believe that this is true and I believe that is not and I will live accordingly. My own personal experience as I behold the eroding faith of those who once claimed to follow Jesus, not just as a pastor, but as a peer, as a friend, as a person, there are all sorts of reasons that people deconstruct and deconvert, sure, but often, in my experience anyway, maybe even most of the time, the pinprick that begins the leak 
comes from the needles of false gods welcomed to the table of belief by the pressures of evolving cultural sensibilities. So someone says, yeah, I get it. I get that thousands of years of the church of Jesus, they've believed this thing that Jesus said, this thing that the scriptures that Jesus endorsed say, but I'm just feeling a lot of pressure to not believe that particular thing. But I swear, I'm still a Christian. It's just that one thing. And the needle pierces and the leak begins. If Jesus was wrong about that, well, then. Sometimes the world loves what Jesus has to say because it still sells. I mean, Jesus advocated for the poor and the marginalized. He stood up against systems and institutions of oppression and racism and injustice. He condemned misogyny. He spoke up for women in a time and place where they're even more voiceless than they are now. He gave voice to the voiceless across the board. All of that is marketable enough in our time in place. You know, we made a joke the other day at community. It's like, oh, someone we know denounced faith in Jesus. They're like, yeah, they don't like Jesus. Well, you know, they don't like Christianity. I mean, really, who has a problem with Jesus? You can put it on like a fashionable little hat and take a stroll down Main Street, quote Jesus at will, decontextualize, of course, and only to suit your argument. But Jesus also had a lot to say about right and wrong. Don't believe me? Just take a, a stroll through those four gospels. He talked about light and dark. He talked about sheep and goats. Jesus talked about judgment all the time. He talked about hell. He taught a sex ethic and a gender paradigm that wouldn't just be considered antiquated by modern pop culture. It would be considered bigoted and dangerous. And Jesus' paradigm for allegiance and faithfulness was hardcore to say the least. Whoever is not with me is against me. That's Jesus. Whoever does not gather with me scatters, meaning who is never, whoever isn't joining in my work is trying to undo it. No one can serve two masters. You have to love one and hate the other. Good grief. Not my words. Again, that's Jesus. And that's scary stuff because the world around you is practically begging you to compromise by diluting and dissecting your faithfulness and allegiance and handing it out to other gods in the name of everyone being a little right, coexistence and modern tolerance in the name of you getting what you want and being who you want to be. It's actually the same old lie as it was in the beginning that we can rule and reign and we can define good and evil on our own terms apart from God. And behind that lie is a real spiritual force of darkness, not just harmless, passive differences of opinion. This is about more than some war of ideology. This is not a culture war. It's about the life of discipleship untarnished by compromise and given over to true faithfulness at the expense of anything and everything else reaching and clawing at our attention and allegiance. I've been thinking about those words from Professor Hurtado this week. He, he wrote, unless there are also distinctive features and demands of being an adherent to a group, people cannot see the point of becoming one or the worth of remaining one. For our little corner of this movement to not only survive, but to thrive, all of us will have to face the often uncomfortable truth that we cannot serve two masters, let alone three or four or a dozen. What does it mean for you and for me to courageously confess in our hearts and with our lives that Jesus is Lord and to reject all other claims for our allegiance? 
Such a thing cannot be realized or carried out apart from the family of God's people. The scriptures open before us in humble submission, ready to walk with one another and hold one another to the truth of Jesus with loving, compassionate accountability. To end tonight, Mark Sayers is a brilliant writer and cultural commentator. We actually have his book, Disappearing Church, which has been massively influential to Van City uh, for sale at cost at our book table um, behind you guys, along with other recommended reads for this series. Mark Sayers wrote about someone called Douglas Hyde, who was a British journalist who came to faith in 1948 while working as an editor for the newspaper of the British Communist Party. When Hyde abandoned the Communist Party to join the church, he was shocked and disappointed to find that the church was disastrously less motivated for change than the communists were. And he thought of how the communists approached their own community, who they, who they pursued and how they pursued them. And though he no longer agreed with the philosophy of the party, he came to believe for a few reasons that their approach was better suited for the church than the church's approach. Because first... They looked for those who were actually willing to be trained. Anyone and everyone is welcome to wander in and out of this building on a Sunday night. No one will stop you at the door, make you take a survey on what you believe. You can take your time exploring Jesus, the scriptures. This is a good place to do it, I would argue, a safe place to do so. People at part who belong to this church or who are becoming involved in this church are all over the map in their story with Jesus, God, Christianity, the scriptures, the church in general. But for those of you who call Van City home, you're in, you're committed, I, you say, I, I agree, I want to do the same thing that you're doing, there has to be a preparedness to do something. We're not here for an event only or for a social contract just to have church on Sunday because it's something you do. We are actually here to train in the ways of Jesus, to learn his teachings and to then put them into practice together. Secondly, the communists actually looked for those willing to be changed. Practicing the way of Jesus, the journey of discipleship, is a journey. It's called the way for a reason because we are going somewhere. We don't deconstruct faith. We transform it as we mature and are formed into the image of Jesus over time. If you show up uninterested and unwilling to become someone else, to grow into someone more like Jesus over time, informed by his teaching, the scriptures, the family of God, then belonging to this family in a significant way won't work. And thirdly, this one is huge. Up front, the Communist Party, unlike the church, asked for commitment, sacrifice, and the willingness to embrace unpopularity. They did this completely prepared for the unreliable and uncommitted to simply walk away. Again, if you're new or visiting and you're thinking, my God, this guy is intense, don't worry. The normal guy will be back next week. Well, <laughs> listen to me about this. You are, and I, I really mean this, you are absolutely welcome to be here and figure this one out. No one is gonna make you sign a contract or press you into some kind of blood oath up front, you know? <laughs> <laughs> But the church, this church, cannot go forward long-term into the months, let alone the years ahead, without faithfulness, without real self-sacrificial commitment to the family of God, which it means commitment of your time, being here on Sunday in a community throughout the week, your energy serving the church in any way that you possibly can, commitment of finances, serving the church, worshiping Jesus by giving to the cause of the kingdom, it doesn't happen without faithfulness. And finally, 
In the Communist Party, students didn't come to be spoon-fed. They came because they wanted to actually become teachers themselves, and students would be expected each week to put into practice what they were learning. This is not a provided service. Each one of us is here to learn and contribute, to give more than we take, and in doing so, to grow in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Noting all this, Douglas Hyde, who had uh, became a disciple of Jesus after being a member of the Communist Party, he was amazed that though the size of the Communist Party paled in comparison to the church, the Communist Party was mobilized and flourishing while the church to him seemed sad and dejected. And noting all this, Mark Sayers wrote, one person's beleaguered minority it is another person's dedicated, committed core. It's all a matter of perspective. We are here to follow Jesus together. And on the journey of discipleship, we will be assailed by many gods clamoring for our attention and devotion. But together, we can walk arm in arm, faithfully down the narrow road of discipleship with uncompromising devotion to Jesus, the destroyer of the gods. Let's pray and ask the Spirit to empower us to do so. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.